Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I am sitting in for Leslie Marshall. This is the one, the only, the award-winning, the fantastic Leslie Marshall show. We've got a bunch of guests coming on today. We're talking politics. We're talking war. We're talking diplomacy. We're talking guns. Um, we got to be talking Donald Trump because that dude has lost his mind. I mean, he's just he's blown his spadoinkle at this point. So what, who better to have on to start off uh, this raucous conversation than Jordan Karp, who is a political consultant, direct mail expert, partner at Catalyze um, with me. We work together, and uh, now we're going to talk together. Jordan, are you here? I am. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Uh, how could I be doing bad with what's going on the last couple of days? It's like part uh, just, yeah, I mean, it, it's part reality show meltdown, which I guess we should have expected, and just part uh, winning with a hashtag, I think. Um so uh, what, what do you see going on, man? Do you have any uh, theories on why uh, Donald Trump has suddenly lost his mind and uh, the, the Republicans who are running away from him and his tweet storming, how that may end up for, for the party once of Lincoln? The, I think the best analogy I can think of would probably be you had so long to study for an, an exam and you just don't do it and you start to freak out about an hour before the exam. And I think that's kind of what's happening in real time here, is that uh, they, I think the Trump team understands the, the actual dynamic, and I think that the wheels just fall off, and it's, um, they fall off on Twitter now is the only difference. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's kind of living that, that nightmare we all have where we're back in school and we didn't show up to class the entire semester, 
and then we have to take the exam. You ever have that one? I had that one, and then I had the one where you, you're not wearing any pants, but in Donald Trump's case, I don't think that was a dream. I think that was a reality. <laughs> there probably was a chair in that one, too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'm not even sure I can go there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, last, what, two weeks now, two and a half weeks since that first debate? First, he has a terrible debate performance where he's, you know, he's him, obnoxious, uninformed, the usual. Then he spends a week fighting it out with a Miss Universe from 20 years ago. Very smart. Uh, then what I think has damaged him uh, in some places like Ohio, we can talk more about that. The, the report comes out on his $915, $16 million tax write-off, which I believe was 2% of like all business losses that year. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I mean, he... Yep. That's that's what we're talking about. So he, he, you know, he's a crappy businessman, and he's used it to not pay taxes for you know twenty years. And then, of course, the coup de grace uh, was him and and Billy Bush sitting there talking. You know, not just being a couple of obnoxious, disgusting people, but literally talking about sexual assault and finding it, I guess, funny. Um, you know, we've had three polls come out now, four if you count Rasmussen, although they, they, they do provide something interesting. Very Republican-leaning. They showed you Hillary plus one to Hillary plus seven. Uh, three others, So, and they're always three, four, five points more Republican than the others. Three other polls have shown it anywhere from nine to 11 points, uh, a Hillary Clinton advantage, which, to put that in perspective, that would be an enormous blowout. Um Last time we had something like that, Bill Clinton beat uh, Bob Dole in 96 by nine points, but no one's done it in double digits. I don't – well, did, did, did Bush Sr. beat uh, Dukakis? In, was that in double digits? I'm trying it, to remember. Dukakis won, I think, 46.9% of the popular vote, um, which is okay. a pretty large blowout. So I think, I think that's what it was. So it wasn't quite double digits. Even. So, I mean, yeah. we have to go back to Reagan for that. And not, look, I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's a, a moment in time. But, you know, for a while, I'm actually interested in your take on this because for a while, um, you know, it, it seemed like they had him a little bit under control. And after that debate, he just lost it all. You've worked well, with I, difficult candidates before. <laughs> well, go ahead. Tell me what you want to say. Well, first of all, they're all difficult. Let's be honest. doesn't matter what party they're in. All candidates are difficult. Um, I, I just I, I find it funny that there's this kind of right wing fantasy out there that all we needed was an outsider to shake things up and, and government should run more like a business. And I think for pe- regular people, you know, we'll call them civilians right now, this idea that it's just easy to a win an election and b to govern is just an absolute fantasy. You know, we do things uh, as political professionals and as consultants. Uh, around strategy and this idea that you could just say a bunch of stuff without a real strategy and, and it's just not that hard is just absolutely ridiculous and it's just pure kind of uh it just comes out of you know never never land and i think that right for those of us who are actual political professionals and, and do this for a living and sort of think about strategy and messaging all the time it's kind of vindicating to say oh yeah you actually do need a strategy oh yeah you really do need a message <laughs> you really do need to think about these things so uh, in that sense it's interesting um, I think well, that this political political scientists will probably study this election for a long time because you'll you'll literally see what it is like for one national candidate to run a race and for the other one to not. So you'll actually be able to measure the effectiveness of knocking on a door, making phone calls, uh-huh. persuading people, and mobilizing them, and what that effect is. 
across an entire. It's an amazing sort of crucible and uh, petri dish of an experiment that we're seeing uh, play out in our in our eyes. So, in, in that sense, it's super interesting. It is. I, I love. Look, I understand wanting somebody who you know saying somebody who hasn't been in D.C. for a while, who, who maybe could have been corrupted by what goes on in Washington. And let's be very clear: more Republican Party by a lot than Democratic Party. But yep. you know, wanting somebody with no experience, as in no idea how to govern and no public policy ideas. You know, isn't it like, hi, I need brain surgery. I want somebody who has who's never gone to medical school to take care of me. Um, you know, I. I uh, we're fighting a war. Let's send somebody over who has never trained before in the military and is kind of out of shape and used to sitting on their their sofa eating bonbons with a remote control. I mean, isn't this sort of – I mean, thinking that, that that just because you want somebody who's a little bit of an outsider, that suddenly strategy doesn't matter at all, tactics don't matter at all, candidate doesn't matter at all, and, as opposed – in terms of temperament and everything, you know, that any outsider – I mean, it, it makes me laugh sometimes when I kind of hear that. I don't know. Yeah, it's me. like somebody teaching you, you know, how to uh, driver's ed who doesn't know which one's the gas pedal and which one's the brake. Um, uh, and so it, what the most interesting thing, again, from a, the Democratic perspective, is that Donald Trump has no, uh, you know, real loyalty to the Republican Party. He does not care if it fails or lives on. And so they're literally all bets are off because he doesn't care. And so there's... Yeah. There's nothing holding him back at this point. You know, if if he's circling the drain for for 28 days, it, it just is. It's just going to be. He's it, just going to be terrible. Higher party down with him because yeah, he, I mean, he know he owes no loyalty to anybody. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Is like it's pretty funny to me when he got up at the convention. and He said, "I get it. You know, I will not disrespect your faith in me or whatever it was." He said clearly he was mouthing what McConnell and Ryan and those guys wanted to hear. Um, but the, the fact that they actually really believed this guy with his history of, you know, ripping off con- contractors, employees, you know, his foundation and just one thing after another improving, it's always just about him that this guy was going to sort of, you know, you know, almost sublimate himself to the greater good of the Republican Party. And now he's in open warfare with McCain and Ryan, and all these guys on Twitter. Um, let's talk more about that. I want to talk about the down ballot implications, but we're about to go to a commercial, so let's take a break. We'll be right back with Jordan Carp of Catalyze. Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie in your pocket. Go to lesliemarshallshow.com forward slash members. Good afternoon once again. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall. This indeed is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, we are talking with Jordan Karp, partner at Catalyze, direct mail fiend, uh, about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, his mental process, and uh, if there is one, and what that's going to lead to in this election. Jordan, you with me, my man. Wonderful to be back. <laughs> I, I like how you, don't, you say that without sarcasm. Um, <laughs> so uh, down ballot, right? Today, I mean, Paul Ryan, although that should be a contestable district, you know, generally, for some reason it never is, but um, so he can maybe take the attacks on him 
personally, he may not like it. He's probably going to still hang in there. But John McCain could actually lose his seat, and he's attacking McCain. And just in general, if Trump wanted to, with how much attention he gets, open, go into literally just warfare after the Republican Party, which he seems to be doing to a certain degree, um, he could destroy them. I'll, I'll say very quickly, a poll that came out um, done by Global Strategy Group uh, showed that uh, the, in the generic ballot test right now, which measures just Democrats versus Republicans in general for the you know these Senate and House campaigns, you've got a plus seven for the Democrats, which is where you start getting to territory where you can even go get around the gerrymandering. But that's not even close to it. They looked into further than that, pointing out to people that this that this particular Republican you know had stayed with Donald Trump. That led it to the to a plus twelve Democratic advantage because they lost swing voters. Then they did the opposite and tested that and said this person ditched Donald Trump, this Republican, and they again the Democrat jumped to plus twelve uh, because they they lost Trump voters. Um, and there was an article about that in the New York Times today about people Republicans voting for Trump and voting for Kirkpatrick just because they're mad at McCain. What do you think about that phenomenon? Uh, it, it's real. I think that House Republicans generally speaking, have put themselves in a bind with they're getting kind of whipsawed here, which is if they had taken a principal stand five months ago, four months ago, and said, you know what, I'm not going to vote for him, I'm against, you know, the top of the ticket, they would have been maybe, um, you know, given a second chance, a second look at by, by uh, swing voters. Uh, by doing it so late, they've put themselves in a position that they can't win. So my my own congressman, Richard Hanna, who's a Republican uh, in upstate New York here where I live, uh, he came out a few months ago and said he was voting for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, talking to some people that I know that are close to him, yeah, he got some pushback, but overwhelmingly regular sort of what we think of as quote-unquote country club Republicans and and sort of not uh, base Republicans really sort of said, you know what, at least you're independent, at least you're principled, uh, and and they, of course, he's retiring, but... um, you know, I think that right. there's a lot of good. There's a there's a pool of goodwill out there for people who are truly independent in their thinking, Republican or Democrat. So, this idea that Republican, you know, members of Congress are going to come out and say, "Well, we're against," you know, the the top of the ticket because I'm an independent, and I, it's just it comes off as super, uh, almost more political and more phony. And I think again, they're going to get whipsawed on this because the Trump people are mad at them, and swing voters are mad at them. It's kind of too cute by half, and they're going to they're going to pay the price. Yeah, and, and it's leading to all sorts of interesting things going on here. You know, the, the McCain, that's one example. Here in Ohio, Rob Portman is up by a solid amount, I think, cl- you know, close to 15 points. But a 12-point generic advantage can start leading to problems even if you're up by that much. Um, I saw an interesting example earlier, which which is just interesting for so many reasons. Um, there was a, a poll that came out that showed – um, Donald Trump only up 36 to 31 in Alaska because yep. Gary Johnson is taking 18% of the vote. Um, and what becomes fascinating about that, it's not like uh, Hillary Clinton needs Alaska, although it could be interesting for her to win it. But but Lisa Murkowski is running for re-election, and Joe Miller, who knocked her out of the Republican primary six years ago, is running on the Libertarian ticket, if I'm correct. So if all these people come out who are angry Tea Partiers or others – uh, you know, who knows who they're going to – they, what if they – some of these people end up going and voting for Joe Miller or some libertarians just because he's on the ticket or Republican-leaning libertarians? I mean, all sorts – you can see all sorts of things happening there is what I'm saying. So, I mean, fun, right? 
Well, it, not only fun, but if you think about how really down ballot, if you think about what Donald Trump could potentially do to state Republican parties in the sense that you may have state legislatures flip based on, on some of this vote uh, turnout, this voter turnout, if you start flipping state legislatures, you're talking a brand new ball game in terms of uh, redistricting uh, after the 2020 census. So a, a lot of the uphill battle we had to, to re, re, um, redraw the lines in some of these states uh, may be taken care of uh, in November because Donald Trump will have done the work for us uh, in, in some of these state legislatures. And when you start flipping state legislatures, the whole landscape of a national election changes based on uh, you know, House districts, U.S. House well, districts. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, look, people brought that up about President Obama is that we've lost an unprecedented number of state legislative seats. And that's not all Obama's fault. I mean, it's partially his fault, certainly. But people forget that, you know, in the era of, of Citizens United in 2000, and, and that first affected, uh, you know, things in 2010, <clears throat> Democrats who didn't adjust quickly, Republicans were ready to bring big money in. I mean, they very smartly. Excuse me. Went after all these state legislatures in every red state, but also, you know, states like mine and places like Ohio and Arizona, <clears throat> Michigan. You know, even sort of lean blue states, not fully blue, but let's call them purplish blue states. And so they've wreaked havoc. Look what they've done in Wisconsin, which was a traditionally pretty sort of center left to left state. <clears throat> they've undermined, you know, what, what Scott Walker's done with money and politics, undermining the university system, and we can go on and on attacking unions. I mean. So undoing a lot of that damage before we, we well, the next redistricting could be huge, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, they also the, the, New, yeah, the New York Senate is a Republican is a Republican chamber. That's right. That's right. Because they keep every time they think that it's like Lucy in the football. Every time the Democrats think they've got it, one of these independent Democrats breaks away, right? Quote unquote independent Democrats. Yes, but you know, like I think in, in 2010, like the main legislature flipped. I mean, you have some of these states where it, you you just think of again, you think of more progressive. Uh, Politically driven states or inclined states, and and they just you've got to you've got to you think of these little house districts where you only need four thousand five thousand votes to win a house a state house district, but those are really they can have dramatic effects on the national landscape, and it's something that our party pr- frankly does not spend enough time worrying about and working towards. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we've learned, and I see people talking about it. I see various state chairmen working on it in a more local way than before, kind of trying to go to places where they've ignored before and, and build a bench and the rest. Certainly here in Ohio, I've seen it. I'm hoping because that's when you're there to take advantage. If you haven't recruited people and you haven't built up that infrastructure, somebody like Donald Trump comes along and you're not there ready to take advantage of it, which is a problem we seem to have too often. And well, that's why is that exactly why no Republican should ever go without an opponent because you never know what's going to happen. You never know how, how these these races break so late. The, the only time they may be up in that race is on Election Day. So you've really got to be aware when these, you know, and not, not let anybody have a free pass. Well, listen, man, we are at the end of that road. Um, but thank you for joining me today, Jordan. Anytime. Uh, principal at Catalyze, direct mail. We will uh, we'll talk again soon, buddy.
liberty and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Good afternoon, everybody, once again. Thanks for joining me. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Had a great talk the past half hour with Jordan Karp about what it is that makes Donald Trump's very strange cerebrum tick or not tick. We're going to switch over a little bit to an incredible story uh, about diplomacy and civil war and what our foreign service officers out there do, uh, the ones I think that Donald Trump wants to bring home because we shouldn't be anywhere else in the world. But I digress. Uh, I should have on the phone with me here uh, Dante Paradiso, who is the author of The Embassy, A Story of War and Diplomacy, Foreign Service Officer, and uh, full disclosure, old friend. Are you with me, Dante? I'm with you, Cliff. Uh, it's great to talk to you. And uh, let me just say I'm a big fan of the Leslie Marshall Show. Love what you guys do. And uh, it's an honor to be on the air with you. Oh, very kind of you. It's an honor to be on the air with you because this book is uh, pretty incredible. Uh, and I don't just say that uh, because you used to beat me in the 200-meter race. I say that because it's an <laughs> – having fun, Dante. Old days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We were on a track team together, everybody. I won't bore you with, uh, you know, high school hero stuff. Um, no, no, but we do we do have a race scheduled next year, so. That's right. If we can, I figure if we can save three out of four hamstrings, we've won. Um, so talk to me about the book. The you know what you you know what you experienced, your idea for the book, and and again, like I made a joke about Trump and everything, but I think when we're having an argument over what our involvement should be in the world, whether this country provides stability through NATO or not. You, you see something, you see Brexit, and you see the British leaving the EU, which has been a stabilizing force. I want to get, you know, your, your opinion. Well, I just want you to tell people what you saw and, and, and what happened, because this is an incredible story. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, Cliff. Um, the embassy, uh, story of war and diplomacy, is a story of courage, and it's an argument why we should be fully engaged in the world and why we should make some tough decisions to be in some difficult places. Uh, the story centers on a very narrow period in Liberian history from June to August 2003 when Charles Taylor, who was a pretty feared warlord, was still mm -hmm. in power. And rebels attacked the capital three times successively uh, in a bid to oust him. And it, it became a question for the United States, which was the last diplomatic mission remaining, uh, whether we would stay or go. And it's a tough call because it's really a question of do you put your lives on the line and try to make a difference diplomatically, or do you, you uh, save folks' lives, but at the same time you're potentially letting the country disintegrate into fractional, fractional fighting along the lines you saw uh, for many, many, many years in Somalia, and you still see them grappling with that. And right. uh, it became an inflection point. Uh, the ambassador made the decision to stay, and as a result, he was able to get uh, a peace process moving on the ground that reinforced the high-level diplomacy, which enabled us to, over time, support Liberian efforts to stabilize the country. And why that's important is if you look at things that have come down the pipe um, Subsequently, first of all, you ended up with the first woman president in Africa, uh, a huge symbolic victory, uh, a progressive symbolic victory as well. The second thing is, is if you look at things like uh, Ebola, which uh, broke out there a couple years ago, 
uh, one of the ways we were to, uh, able to stem uh, that crisis was by working with Liberian partners on the ground. And those partners were there because the country had held together. Now, can I, yeah, let me jump in for a second there because people don't realize how incredibly important that is. Um, you know, the U.S. being involved in the world, is it cheap? No. You know what's more expensive? Not doing it. Um, you know, our involvement, I think of the speeches by John F. Kennedy and others. I mean, there's a nobility to it, to trying to, to work with people in the world to bring about peace, to bring about development, you know. But if you just want to even be selfish, right, if you just want to have the, the view of, well, we want to protect ourselves, you know, there's Ebola out there, as we know, other diseases that are terrible, too. There are nuclear weapons in parts of the world. Um, there are there are many other things that can go wrong, and you know what? It finds its way to our shores. You, you, this is not a world where you can just ignore everything anymore. I know I'm on my soapbox here, so I apologize. I should be asking you questions, but no, but, no, no. And that's why what you part, go ahead. This is part of what the book uh, part of what the book is about, right? It it, it tells a dramatic story of uh, a, a U.S. embassy's uh, decision to remain on the ground and try to work the equation on the ground by. Uh, separating the warring parties and creating space for peace to take hold. But again, you, you don't put people's lives at risk uh, and, and employees' lives at risk unless there's a clear reason to do it. And all of those reasons come into play in, in the management of complex crises, right? It, it is things like if you allow ungoverned spaces, you inevitably get transnational crime, pandemics, uh, and um, a whole host of other uh, issues that can come out of these spaces. And, of course, as you said, uh, there is something to doing the right thing and uh, preventing humanitarian catastrophes where we have the capacity to do it and where uh, it makes some sense to, to intervene. So uh, those are reasons for us to be engaged, and, and that's part of uh, the thrust of what the story is about. Right. I mean, in these cases... You know, if, especially if there are governments that are lacking financial or st other kinds of stability that are close by, obviously other countries can be can and are drawn into these conflicts too, which can lead to, to a, a much larger conflagration. So it seems well, to me preventing it. Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, in, in every country, you know, countries don't uh, uh, simply become unstable by themselves, right? There's flows of weapons that move through the world. There's flows of narcotics, there's flows of ideology that's all moving through this interconnected world. And inevitably, uh, a country like uh, Liberia, uh, if it's unstable, it's going to affect its neighbors. And if its neighbors are affected, it affects the region and more broadly. By the same token, to, to try to support peace in the world and try to support prosperity and try to support development, you're making arguments for combined and joint solutions where you bring neighbors in to work a problem so that the problem they can contain a problem and everybody is part of the solution. And, and that's one of the things when you talk 30,000-foot diplomacy, uh, you not only want to work uh, the issue on the ground with fighters and with uh, generals, but you also want to be making sure that other interested actors, whether it's the U.N. Security Council, whether it's uh, neighboring countries, whether it's regional countries, or other countries that may be arms suppliers, all of those actors have to be brought in, in into a peace process to make it successful. Yeah, but if you have a president that knows more than the generals, do you really need them? <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help I'll, myself. I'll, 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 let, I'll let you and the voters uh, answer that question, Cliff. As you know, I'm <laughs> a 
foreign as a foreign foreign service officer, my goal is to serve uh, all Americans. But uh, look, and you're a good man that way. I'm just being a pain in your butt. Um, <laughs> no, so, <laughs> so the experience you learn from there, right? I mean, you've been in a couple other kind of hairy situations too. Um, yeah. Tanzania, for example. I was. I was in the uh, embassy bombing in, in Tanzania. It was uh, my introduction to the State Department. I was an uh, <laughs> intern uh, back in 1998, and uh, I was finishing up a uh, tour and just about ready to go on safari. And I was sitting in the office with my colleagues, and uh, the bomb went off and unfortunately uh, killed 12 of our Tanzanian colleagues uh, and uh, oh, injured, no. injured some of our American colleagues. Uh, we picked our way out through the, uh, the building, and uh, within a few hours, you're, you're putting together lists of uh, who's alive, who's missing, uh, trying to re- restart the chancery in a new location. Uh, and then it started to come through that, you know, this was uh, probably uh, bin Laden and probably al-Qaeda. And you know, that was one of the, really the first times that uh, this was on, um, you know, my radar screen. Uh, obviously, we were a little bit more aware in New York. Uh, you and I are both New Yorkers, so we're yeah. a little bit more aware from the 93 um, bombing in, uh, in uh, the World Trade Center that uh, a lot of people have sort of forgotten, but there was a bombing mm-hmm. there. It was not, as, not successful like uh, 9-11. Uh, but in that particular case, uh, we, were, we were pretty new as a country to us being the, the direct attack of an ideological war. So this was really one of the first big blows against us. And so I was kind of on the ground uh, ground level for that. And then uh, you and I have talked about 9-11. I was up in Boston, and the planes would have flown by uh, my office building. I was up on the 27th floor uh, that morning. Yeah. So, Well, listen, um, uh, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, we thought I was down in downtown Manhattan. We're going to take a quick break. Dante, we're going to come back and talk more about what you learned and how, how that's applicable to what we need to know in the world. Want a free podcast of Leslie? It's as easy as going to www.lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back, folks, once again. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm sitting in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show, having a great conversation about the embassy, a story of war and diplomacy with my friend Dante Paradiso. And yes, that is, is his real name. It is that cool. Dante, you there? I am. How are you doing, Cliff? <laughs> I'm doing well, man. I just I'm a little upset because my name's not as cool as yours. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's come up, but uh, you know it wasn't that cool when I was a little kid. It, it took until I got to college, then it then it then it, it got a little cooler. Okay, well that's good. That's true. Must have worked out well in some some literary philosophy classes. Others, um, we're di- I'm digressing now. That's my fault. So. We were talking when we left a little bit about uh, your experience uh, in an embassy that was attacked. We were talking about your experience in a war zone. Um, clearly, you're an example right off of, of what an important role America plays in, in numerous countries abroad as a stabilizing influence. Um, so let me ask you something. You know, this is a, obviously you're speaking for yourself here, not the State Department or anybody else. 
Correct. But w- what are your thoughts uh, from what you learned in both of those places? What are your thoughts about how we would handle? You see so many questions about ISIS. What to do about ISIS? What can we do about ISIS? And it, yeah. and it's a you know it's a very difficult uh, you know situation to to figure out what a good strategy is there. I can think of a lot of things that could work, but why don't uh, what are you what are your thoughts from? Uh, somebody who's smart and has been over, spent a lot of time in that part of the world. Yeah, let me, uh, let me say a couple points, and, and you're right, I am speaking uh, in my own capacity, not uh, as a representative of the State Department or the government. Um, what, what I'll say is this. The, the first thing is, is that everybody should realize that uh, America does have successes, that uh, we can stay with it and we can get successes, and there's a lot of successes uh, that you don't hear about. Uh, it's very easy to talk about how we're doing everything wrong and, and things aren't working, and yet uh, there are cases like what we did in Liberia where we supported uh, West African efforts, Liberian efforts to stabilize the country, get a peace uh, that has, has uh, served the region and the world well uh, for 13 years now. Um, there are many stories like this that don't always get out. So that's the first thing. The second thing is... Okay when you're dealing with complex problems, whether it's ISIS or something else, you often want to resource these things up front, uh, meaning it's uh, a lot more expensive once you're in conflict, once you're in war. And so you're looking at the, um, you know, the origins of ISIS really go back. It's really a sort of fifth-generation version of al-Qaeda. So right. at what point along the lines are you trying to figure out how to engage the areas and the communities that will spawn these kind of ideologies, right? And, and how you do that uh, can make a big difference in how, um, how, how widely a problem can spread. Um, so what you want to be doing is resourcing the ability of our country to build and sustain alliances both at the high international level but also at the local level. And that's something that we often uh, need to do more of, right? We need to be putting resources into the diplomacy up front. And then when you're talking about a a very complex problem where uh, ideology is at stake, I would just say that it's it's really first identifying and understanding what the problem is. And there are certain cases where territory is at stake. And where territory is at stake, uh, sometimes it's going to have to uh, require uh, military effort to contain, uh, sustain, make sure that that doesn't go out and, and threaten neighbors, uh, undermine a whole region. But often ideolo- ideology is a lot harder to, to get a hold of because really it, it crosses all borders and it can pop up in little nodes. And we, we've seen that in, in problems like ISIS. And so there it's about strengthening, engaging communities, including our own communities in the United States, whereby we can understand when we see youth attracted to, for example, a poisonous ideology, uh, do we know uh, what's driving that disaffectation or what's driving that uh, attraction to wanting to be part of something else? Um, and, now, can I ask you something uh, those quickly? Are the kind of questions that, those are the kind of questions you should be asking. No, yeah. I think that's great, and that makes a lot of sense. Do we have even ever, you know, so we used to talk about winning over hearts and minds, part of what, you know, you heard Ronald Reagan say that a lot. Obviously, in, in the time since, it's been a much repeated phrase in terms of, of uh, you know, the uh, sort of battle of ideologies in parts of Europe, even other parts of the world, in parts of Asia. But, 
you know, in the in the Middle East, do, do, do we even have any credibility to win hearts and minds? I mean, is, is anybody going to even listen to us? Well, you know, I'm not a uh, I'm not a specialist on the Middle East, but here's what I'll say: having been a Foreign Service officer on the ground in places like Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, other places that uh, that have, have gone through some difficulties, uh, I'll say the United States continues to have uh, incredible um, credibility. With many local people, we still represent the aspirations of many people around the world. And there are many people that want to partner with us. There are people that understand that uh, whatever warts that we have, we also are a leading voice for human rights. We're a leading voice right. for uh, positive, progressive change in the world. And people see that and latch on to it. Now, what that takes to consolidate those relationships and friendships is, one, you know, consistency. Uh, when you're on the ground in a place like Afghanistan and you're making friends with people, if you uh, change the nature of that relationship, uh, you're, you know, you precipitously pull out of an area, for example, you're leaving behind a lot of people who say, well, wait a second, what, what were we just talking about? You know, are, are you here uh, to support us and sustain us or not? And so you have to look at, at, at that part of the equation is, is consistency leads to increased credibility. But in terms of what we stand for and people's willingness to work with us, it's still very much there. On a person-to-person -person level, uh, Americans still have a very can-do spirit, and we yeah. are o overseas to try to work with people and to partner with people and to do business with people and to do it in an entrepreneurial spirit. Those are all now, things that people recognize and value about us. And when we project that, uh, in, you, you will find actually on a person-to-person -person level, people really uh, appreciate what we represent and who we are. A lot of times there's fierce disagreement with uh, top-level policy, and people also really don't like when bombs are dropped in their communities. So when those well, – One can understand that. It changes, it changes the nature of the relationship, right? Yeah, and I was going to say, look, um, to – for your your book, the embassy, when you wrote this, is that why you wanted to tell this story? Was it just? An, I mean, obviously, part of it's just incredible. You know, all the things that could have gone wrong. I think you do a service in in writing it because we've we've watched this as, as, and I'll say this so you don't have to uh, put yourself in an uncomfortable position. But Benghazi got so politicized, uh, and you know, with with certain people not being able to, being able to accept that. You know what? Things go wrong in war zones. There's terrible things that happen. And guess what? There are people who have agreed, like you, to put their lives in the line, uh, who should be known as incredible heroes, and frankly, in my opinion, whose lives should not be politicized. Um, so, so here is a story of the United States doing some, some good work and really preventing what could have been a much worse catastrophe. Um, is that so, you know, is, was that the inspiration for the story? Yeah, I think the inspiration is, look, uh, Liberians uh, suffered incredible trauma. Uh, they worked really hard uh, as, a, as a population to put pressure on the world to help them out of a situation where they were basically held hostage by uh, horrible uh, rebels and, and, and a government that was uh, harassing them and abusing them. And so this is a case where the United States did the right thing uh, stayed the course, supported that. And, yeah, I do think it's very important to tell these positive stories. Uh, I think that is an underrepresented aspect of our foreign policy is these success stories that happen uh, at a time and at great risk. 
I also wanted to tell the story about the risk and the pressure. The ambassador was under a great deal of pressure to close the embassy, understandably. Uh, and I want people to understand, because you really get an insight into his thinking as the pressure comes down, as to the calculations you have to make. And you don't always get it right. Uh, wars do end in messy and unexpected ways. Uh, war and conflict is inherently messy. Uh, but you try, to, you try to do your best to take those calculated risks. And it's yep. important that we do that. It's important that we... We're finishing we, up, Dante. Uh, I want to make sure to tell people, buy the embassy, a story of war and diplomacy. Fantastic book, progressive book. Um, I can't put it down. You'll love it. Thanks for being on, Dante Paradiso. Thank you, Cliff. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. show having some great conversations we just talked about the embassy a story of war and diplomacy with dante paradiso i, I gotta tell you again great book grab it an incredible story about politics with jordan carp um and i believe we are now uh we should now have maria cuomo cole on the line i'm hoping we do um to talk about her film her new documentary Newtown. um are you there or no maybe she's not there um, I think we're trying to get it right now, so uh, we'll, I guess we'll just have to have a conversation, you and me, while we're waiting. Um, last week has been kind of fascinating in the world of politics, as you all know. We talked earlier, again, um, with Jordan about some of this. Right now, as we speak, I think uh, Donnie Trump is still tweeting out angry missives at uh, – at various one-time friends, one-time enemies, we'll call them frenemies. Um, it's kind of incredible. I've not seen this in American politics, and I'm not acting like I'm some 70-year-old here, but uh, I've been doing this stuff for a while. It's kind of incredible to see the infighting that's going on. It's affecting down ballot. I think it's kind of becoming one of those things where I feel like I have to check in every minute to know what's going on. Um, you know, we've got early voting is starting. Um, I believe today, in fact, in Ohio. So uh, get out there and vote, everybody. There's a number of other states. You need to go and find out where your polling place is and get out and vote. Um, could be a wave election. I think a lot of people listening to the station here would like it if that wave ended up uh, heading in the direction of big Democratic victories. And uh, maybe get a little progressive policy. Change up that Supreme Court. Take uh, that seat that's been left open for... Ever and ever and ever, that was filled by Justice Scalia, and uh, who knows? Maybe we could uh, fill that with somebody who 
as in quote from Breitbart. Um, I'm trying to think, folks. Maybe you know, maybe we're at a point where where uh, I, I'll take a few calls or something like that. Let me see what my what my uh, producer is thinking about this. If we should grab a few calls here, see what you guys are thinking. Um, hmm. Hold on. Let's see. Meantime, um, I want to know what's going on with all of you. If you call in, let me know uh, locally. Are there elections that are important to you? Nationally, the number is 888-653-7543. That is 888-653-7543, 888-6-LESLIE. Call in. We'll talk. We'll uh, become new friends. We'll find people who uh, are Republican probably to make fun of because there's just lots of craziness. Meantime, you know, maybe I'll tell you a little bit of news going on. I don't know if uh, any of you have seen... Um, Chris Christie seems himself to be, besides getting in trouble for Bridgegate, jumping off the uh, the Donald Trump train. <laughs> yeah, there's an interview with him uh, where he has actually gone after Donald Trump for uh, for not, uh, or actually for for the statement he made and the videotape that has come forward showing him making terrible claims about women. And Christie has said uh, he's still leaving room open for himself to leave if Trump. Um, doesn't handle it right. I don't know. When you've lost Chris Christie, uh, you've kind of lost the world. I think I just got a message that we have Maria on the phone. So I'm going to stop telling you about things that you're probably not as excited to hear about as you are to hear about what Maria is up to. And uh, we'll go there. Uh, are you with me, Maria? Thank you. Thank you. I am. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Sorry for the phone problem. Oh, you know, phones. It happens with all this stuff. Uh, I appreciate your joining us. Um, I got to see some through a screener of this incredible new film um, that you are a producer of, if I am correct. That would be your yes, title as producer. Um, and, you know, this is sort of following up for you. Um, you did Living for 32 back in 2011. Yes. Uh, so obviously an issue close to your heart. And, um, you know, how else would I introduce you? You've done a number of really incredibly important uh important films. The Invisible War was another one. You know, you've won a Peabody, two Emmys. I can go on and on and, and give, but I mean, very impressive. So why don't you tell me about the, the film Newtown? Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. This, this film is called Newtown, and it's just um, actually in theatrical distribution now in New York and uh, moving into California, and we'll have an opportunity for national distribution on November 2nd. But the film really features the community at large in the uh, in Newtown that were affected so tragically by the Sandy Hook shooting um, that took six children, six educators, and twenty children. Uh, the deadliest shooting of school children ever um, in our history, mm-hmm. and the film really focuses on the impact on the community at large. Um, not only the families who lost loved ones, but the teachers, law enforcement, parish uh, priest, um, faith community, etc. Wow. What, what was that like going in? Um, I've been lucky enough to have met Mark Barden before, who's a terrific, terrific gentleman. Um, he indeed is. He indeed is. What was it like? Go the, ahead. Sorry. Sure, of course. You know, the community, you know, what can you say? The community is devastated on so many levels. Um, you know, over the 
period, a period of three years, we've worked with the families who are featured in the film, the Bardens, the Wheelers, the Hockleys, um, and grew to know more of the community members, uh, as some of whom are, are featured in the film, people who work in the community, live um, live and contribute to the community. And I'll tell you, it was really a very inspiring experience because they are, mm-hmm. they have such a personal uh, courage and are so devoted to prevent this from happening to other communities and other families. Yeah, and I can only imagine, I mean, they have to encounter sort of, I guess we might call, you know, I hate even using the word triggers because we're talking about guns here, but these, you know, every day they have to go to these places. They they were with their children, and um, I have two young boys. I'm, I'm horrified by the thought. Um, yeah. I mean, the incredible courage to keep going forward, and so many of them getting active politically, um, which has been incredibly helpful to the rest of us. Can yeah, you talk a little bit about – go ahead. That's true. That's true. There's some tremendous, you know, young people who were – um, you know, in high school at the time, I've moved into their college years who are, you know, very, very uh, effective advocates. Um, you know, and it, the, the community really has experienced um, the impact of the tragedy in a ripple effect. And, you know, that's really the point, that these episodes of violence are not isolated only to the immediate community uh, that suffers suffers the, the uh, tragic consequences, but, you know, it, it travels outward and outward, and it's really a metaphor for our country at large and how we are all impacted by these repeated episodes of mass violence that can, in many cases, you know, be mitigated. Yeah, you know, I wonder that sometimes because it's, this is an issue that, I, that I've worked on for a while, um, I've done some work in the past with Mayor Bloomberg's organization um, and with others, the Brady campaign. And, you know, when you see this every day, it, it, I mean, I don't want to ever compare it to, to PTSD or something like that. But, you know, I know people who have gone through sort of real bouts of depression because um, they're so, you know, they're, it, it's so all engrossing and it's so difficult when you see people suffering like this. But this is what... We need to do. We need to tell these stories so we can get get real change. Well, I think that's true. I think actually, P, you know, uh, PTSD. I think PTS is experienced by these communities and by families, by individuals. Um, I think that is a fair a fair assessment. I think it it is truly a response to trauma and one that lasts, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lifetime, a lifetime in in most cases. Uh, you know, how, how can it not, right, when you, you think about the devastating loss? Um, but we're really hoping sure. that, you know, this film is not a political um, film. It is not an overt advocacy-driven film. It really is very much an intimate, inside look at the community, at the families, and the audience is very much um, left to make their own decisions. Uh, but overwhelmingly, you know, the response has been that this, you know, this touches people in a in a very uh, personal and you know human way. That these right. are human stories, you know, really that do not deserve to be politicized. Yep, I agree. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're with Maria Cuomo Cole. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll talk more about your great new film, Newtown. 
Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall, and this is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, We are lucky right now to be talking to a great filmmaker, Maria Cuomo Cole, who's just come out with a new film, a new documentary, called Newtown, which I think speaks for itself. Uh, Maria, are you still with me? I'm here. Great. Thank you. Um, sure. Um, I wanted to ask you something uh, when you, you know, we were talking about yes, when we were going to the break. Yes, you I'm said that, you. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Um, you said when we were going to the break, you know, and I, I respect this, I think this is the right way to do this, that you didn't want this to be politicized. This is a story about these families afterwards. I've found, you know, as someone who's who's done work in this field, you know, many of us just care about saving lives and, and you know, hopefully, you know, helping solve a public health crisis. The problem becomes that we have these people on the other side, side known as the National Rifle Association, that tries to politicize everything about this. Have you, and you don't need to answer that, but I'll just ask you this, have you run into any any difficulties with them, you know, attacking your film or you or anything of that nature? You know, we have not. Um, we have not. In the past, this story really is beyond reproach. And this is simply the truth um, of, of what happened to the community and to the families who lost loved ones. Um, we have, though, had NRA members in the audience who have shared really interesting sentiments after seeing the film, and in a very positive way. Some have said, you know what, I'm going to really think about the way I'm storing my weapons. I'm really going to think about, you know, my ammunition. I'm really going to think about assault weapons. You know? Well, yeah. What is, what is the point? You know, why are we allowing weapons? Um, to be stored in homes, to be, you know, used uh, by everyday gun owners. So these are questions that are, you know, starting to spark conversations. Uh, we're hoping that the film will be used on a grassroots level in communities where um, their own local communities come together to watch and discuss film. Their, their mm-hmm. local PTA, their local state leaders. Uh, law enforcement, that communities are, you know, will really start engaging um, together to, to try to take some ownership about preventing gun violence in their communities. Well, that's great. And, and you know, and that's where uh, I think a film like this can be so important because there are a lot of people who have very open minds, I think, to common sense measures that would prevent gun violence. Uh, you see it in polling. You know, when I say NRA, that's sort of a shorthand for the the executives of the NRA. Because NRA members, when you start looking at things like 75% of them supporting background checks and that kind of thing, you see that, that's that right. you know, right, they're, you know, that's they right. don't, they're, they're reasonable. On 75% these of NRA members 
have supported background checks now for over three, four years um, since since Newtown, certainly uh, for the legislation that failed and the most recent. And um, and I, you know, overall the statistic I think is ninety two percent, ninety two percent of Americans support background checks and safer gun laws overall, and the enforcement of the gun laws that we already have on the books. So I mean, that's very, very telling. And, um, you know, people talk about Newtown as a tipping point and that if nothing happened in response to Newtown, you know, uh, what can we ever hope for? Well, we can hope for a lot, and we see things changing. We failed, unfortunately, to secure federal legislation after Newtown, but a number of states have really um, stepped up and addressed their local issues, and yep. governors have really moved uh, aggressively to pass legislation that in, you know includes the strictest laws that they're able to implement on a state level. Yeah, and look, right now it looks like we're set to, at least in what I've been reading uh, recently, we're set to pass four different uh, ballot measures in California, Washington State. I did some work on the one in Washington State. Um, yeah. I know that one uh, well, Nevada, Nevada and Maine. Right, right. Um, and, you know, kudos to them. They're working very hard at it. Um, hopefully they'll all be successful, and they're raising tremendous awareness. But, you know, not every state, of course, can um, manage uh, a statewide referendum. It's difficult. It's you know, it mm-hmm. requires tremendous work on the ground. It requires a lot of resources um, to run the effort. So, you know, while these state ballot initiatives are are excellent, and we hope more and more continue, realistically, we you know we can't rely on that, and you know we have to we have to pass national legislation. Well, no, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, state law. In states where we've been able to pass it, like Oregon and Delaware, as part of the answer, I think, uh, you know, ballot measures where we can, and even locally, was it Missoula in, in Montana, there was a, there was a local um, county that passed background checks. I mean, I think whatever you can do, wherever you can do it, but that's where, to me, where your film plays such an important role, because I think a lot of people hear, prop, you know, call it propaganda, call it talking points, and, you know, that gun grabbers and all this kind of stuff as opposed to, you know, there's a lot in between people giving up guns completely and having no laws um, in some states where people don't even have to do a background check to carry a concealed weapon. There's a lot of smart regulations we can pass. Uh, and so I think what actually your film reminds people of what happened that day in Newtown and, you know, how all of us, I think, would would, would almost give anything to have that never happen again to, to 20 right. little kids and their teachers. So. That's right. Well, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. On November 2nd, we will be actually screening the film in 470 theaters nationwide on one evening. Um, right. With a simultaneous screening, and it's being organized by a group called Fathom, uh, Fathom Events. So we hope we're going to have to go, Maria. But I wanted to say to people, NewtownFilm.com, you can go and get all the information about this fantastic film. Please see it. It's very important. Thank you so much for being here, Maria. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too.
Sign up for our free newsletter. Go to www.wesleymarshallshow.com. All right, one more time. Good afternoon, folks. Thank you for tuning in. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall because this, indeed, is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, I hope you caught that last segment. We had a great conversation with Maria Cuomo Cole about her new film, Newtown, about that terrible day, a documentary about the aftermath. Uh, I hope you'll go to newtownfilm.com and see about the schedule for that. I also remind you, we had a great conversation earlier with Dante Paradiso, author of The Embassy, a story of war and diplomacy, an incredible story in Liberia about uh, the ability to avoid what could have been an, an even larger catastrophe. Um, now we have uh, we're going to go back and talk a little bit more politics. We're lucky enough to have on the phone with us former U.S. Senate candidate here in the great state of Ohio, city councilman in Cincinnati, all around good guy, P.G. Sittenfeld. Are you with me, P.G.? Cliff, it, it's great to be on the Leslie Marshall show with you. Uh, even if Leslie Marshall is uh, only here in spirit, enjoyed coming on with her uh, during the campaign earlier in the year. And uh, I'm a proud member of the Cliff Schechter fan club especially Uh-oh. following along on Twitter. You're a great progressive voice, and uh, glad, glad to be on the show with you today. Well, two things there. That's a dangerous club to be in. You never know. It can come <laughs> crashing down like a, a Donald Trump tweet. or uh, And, uh, yeah, well, we'll get you back on with Leslie. I'm, I'm going to fill in, but, you, you know, no, look, we'll, you, we'll make I, it work. I, I think uh, you, you sound very at home in the big chair. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, uh, it's fun, man. Um, so... Ohio, let's, do you mind talking a little bit about politics in Ohio? You, you went across the state, obviously, running in a Senate race. Uh, for disclosure with everybody, I consulted on PG's race. I'm a huge fan. Um, but you're a keen political mind. What do you think it looks like uh, with some of some late-night uh, tweets and other, God, just, just uh, I don't know how to say it, depressing video and audio coming out of Donald Trump being the person we thought he was? This is a, I was worried, but it looks like we're, we're back in the lead here. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, a, a, a few things. The first sort of reaction, and this is such an Ohio thing, and I know other swing state listeners might be able to sort of relate to this, but Ohio, despite people, what people might say about we hate all the negative ads and, you know, it's maybe a little bit of political oversaturation, Ohioans actually kind of love that the last several elections, probably going back to – you know, to, to the first, uh, to OO, and then certainly in Kerry's campaign, and then both Obama elections, that, you know, when they called Ohio, is really when they were like, all right, this one's going to go. We now know who's going to win the presidency. So what right. it looked like, you know, Trump was in a stronger position and was, was you know, even leading and had a somewhat durable lead uh, in Ohio. Oh, I think Democratic Ohioans were saying, say it ain't so. You know, we don't want to risk our status as, as not just a swing state, <laughs> but the swing state. Now, the good news, in addition to, I think, preserving our status as a swing state, is obviously, as you said perfectly, Trump is exactly who we thought he would be. I mean, you know, there's no question that that tape was lewd and grotesque and offensive. Um, but the one thing I wasn't, and I think this is true of most people, I wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised. Right. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is he's, he's vile. So the fact that, you know, he'd be saying some of those things uh, on tape, didn't come as a huge shock. It's obviously swing things. But I think the, the final point just relative to Ohio mm-hmm. clip that I wanted to make that isn't always necessarily a part of just the day-to-day cable news punditry narrative 
is how unbelievable the ground game and the infrastructure is here. I mean, you know, because we've been through this for so many cycles, you know, if somebody's not registered to vote in our state, they had to avoid and, you know, <laughs> a whole lot of canvassers and organizers. So I think ultimately, you know, when a percentage, two percentage can, can determine, you know, which way a state tilts, I think that's going to be a big uh, leg up for Hillary coming down the home stretch. Yeah, you know, and I think people um, don't always put together exactly how important that ground game is. And not only does Hillary have, supposedly has expanded upon what uh, an amazing ground game by the Obama people, but, you know, there was just a story in the Cincinnati Inquirer that went national a few days ago about the Republican Party chairman here, Matt Borges, who isn't yet sure he's voting for Trump. Um, that can't be when you've got Trump who doesn't believe in data and doesn't have his own, di- you know, digital operation, <laughs> turn out the vote operation. You add on top of that John Kasich not supporting him and you add uh, Matt Borges, the chairman of the party. I would think that could hurt things even further, wouldn't you? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think a, a lot of sort of media stories have been written about, you know, when you have and granted, I think you and I both disagree with John Kasich on a lot of policy matters. But I, I will absolutely you know, gladly confess that I respect him taking a principled uh, stand relative to not supporting Donald Trump, that I think the point that a lot of folks have made is it's not just Kasich himself as one man, as the governor of the state, not giving his endorsement, but it's his sort of withholding his whole machine. So a level of organization that I guess Kasich could have deployed uh, to Trump's benefit now is not happening. So I think, you know, I think the combination of things, you know, if, if I'm Donald Trump, I'm feeling bad right now for a whole lot of reasons, but you know, I think right. Ohio is probably giving him a, a lot of comfort, or at least a little bit of comfort for a few weeks there, and I think that comfort should be evaporating as well. Well, that's good. Uh, yes, I hope that comfort is evaporating. Um, now, look, I, so, I will say, obviously, things things change, as you know well. I mean, things change fast in politics, and, you know, to oh. the Ohio, fellow Ohioans that are listening, nobody should take anything for granted. You know, early voting starts tomorrow, so anything anyone can do for these home stretch weeks to, you know, get their friends to the polls, to talk to neighbors. Um, you know, it, it is kind of amazing that with two people who are, have been so universally known for so many decades that such a thing as an undecided voter still exists out there. But uh, to those listening, if you know an undecided voter, use your powers of cajolery now. Yeah, that's how you know, by the way, PG's a pro, folks, because he doesn't forget things like that. He's been through the statewide as well as the local uh, elections. And that's <clears throat> with early voting starting tomorrow. The more votes you bank... Uh, early on, you know, that, that even affects uh, some of the media narrative about what's no, going well, on. I, I think I think there's a story, and I, I only saw the headline and the first couple nuggets from it, but I believe there's a story live on the New York Times right now saying that, you know, we may well have pretty good indication, even outside of the polling and the media narrative, we might have a more scientific indication about who's going to be the next president of the United States based on early polling, and that already in places like North Carolina, where folks are requesting ballots from and where they're coming back in from for these absentee and early ballots uh, already seems to be favorable for Hillary. So, you know, I think Donald Trump was able to poo-poo, you know, sort of traditional organization and data-driven efforts during the primary. But this is it, 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 it ain't, we ain't in Kansas anymore, and it's not the primary anymore. No. If he's not careful, he could lose Kansas, too. So there's that. Yeah, that's true, too. Man. <laughs> we might be looking at a sea of blue, Cliff, and I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't either. I'd like to swim right through it. Um, <laughs> so here's a tougher one. We've got a, well, a few minutes till we, we have to run to a quick break, so I think we can answer this one. You ran what I thought, you know, you ran a spirited campaign. 
<clears throat> got out there, did a great job. Unfortunately, you weren't able to get the nomination, which Ted Strickland got. Uh, you've been great, I, I think, in supporting him. I've seen that throughout since then. You know, it's been a tough race. Rob Portman, I'll give credit where, where it's due, has raised a lot of money and run a very um, a good race. But, you know, when you're seeing things like this new poll that shows that, that whether that, whether Republicans either stick with Trump or walk away from Trump, either way, they get to a 12-point generic disadvantage. Um, do you think with the turnout machine here, there's still a shot for Ted Strickland? Yeah, I, I, I sure hope so. Um, obviously, you know, as you know, I, I ran a spirited campaign that I was very proud of, especially the issues that we highlighted and I think did reshape the conversation in the primary. You know, once the primary was over, um, called Governor Strickland that night and said, you know, let me know how I can be helpful and have tried my best to do so ever since. Yeah, I, I think what I wish every voter could sort of be reminded of is that $60 million has been spent by folks like the Koch brothers, like the NRA, to really rewrite history um, and try and make Rob Portman into somebody that, when you look at his voting record, is not who he's been. So, you know, Rob is trying to make it seem like he has not been this huge proponent of trade deals, which have been especially rough for a state like Ohio, when the reality is, you know, he was Mr. Trade in Washington. He was George W. Bush's trade rep. So, you know, it's sad, but the reality is $60 million can rewrite history. So with all that being said, you know, I've been with, with Ted Strickland uh, a couple times in just recent recent days and recent weeks. You know, he, I think, is certainly in good spirits and is, you know, going to do everything he can to sprint across the finish line. And, you know, I, I if, if, if Trump, uh, you know, continues to implode, I think we're going to have a competitive Senate race on our hands. That's but what I think. I think... No, there's... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, look, there, there's no question that the money uh, that's gone toward Rob Portman has created a bit of an uneven playing field, but uh, hopefully that can be evened out in the final weeks here. That's what I'm hoping, too. All right, well, why don't we go to a quick break, and we'll come right back with P.G. Sittenfeld, talk a little bit more about uh, this crazy election year. Become Leslie's friend on Facebook. Go to www.facebook.com forward slash Leslie Marshall and join her fan page. more of Leslie's opinions? Check out her blog at www.lesliemarshallshow.com. All right, folks, welcome back one last time this afternoon. We're heading towards 6 o'clock Eastern. Uh, we've got with us, luckily, 10 more minutes, well, maybe 8 more minutes. We've got P.G. Sittenfeld, city councilman here in the city of Cincinnati and former Senate candidate in Ohio. We're talking a little politics. PG, you still with me? A real-time update. I've been in transit during the time that we've been uh, doing this interview, and I just uh, moments ago passed by a uh, Donald Trump yard sign inside of a real person's yard. So despite all of the offensive, racist, bigoted, misogynistic, homophobic, the list goes on and on and on, things he said, there are still people that are willing to publicly acknowledge they're with the man. So in the spirit wow. of Helen getting complacent, uh, you know, that was just a little reminder in real time. 
No, that is good. Uh, I'd say two things. One, you have to let me know where that is, so I won't let my kids trick or treat there. <laughs> I'm going to take you over to door, to door knock their door and convince them otherwise. That's right. I'll go talk with them. Second of all, I think you said this before, PG, and it's incredibly important, which is right now, you know, Ohio's looking like it, like we, we can win it if everybody gets out and does what they need to do. Arizona is even looking like we can win Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable, yeah. Which is amazing, but that doesn't mean that people say it's over, it's done. Um, it's incredibly important that everybody get the, talk to their friends, talk to people they know, talk to your parents, remind them why they can't support Donald Trump because – and they need to vote and vote early for Hillary Clinton because, again, you know, things change. And uh, we've been through a few cycles of that during just this election cycle itself, up and down in the polls. So let's, let's I, try I, to lock this I, in. I, I'm sure there will be, you know, a, a few scares on both sides before it's all said and done. But in, in the sort of department of somewhat wacky theories but from credible sources, there was a tweet earlier today from Chuck Todd that said, maybe Trump scorched earth policy is to, you know, make folks feel either just so sort of like sick and disgusted with the whole process that they don't vote or so confident that Hillary's going to win that they don't vote. And by, uh, you know, as a consequence of having depressed the vote so much, that actually makes Trump competitive again. I, I'm not sure that that theory necessarily holds up, but it came from, uh, came from Chuck Todd himself. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. I think sometimes we try to, to, to turn Donald Trump into what we try to turn Karl Rove into a bit – more of a genius than perhaps he is. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I think applying the evil, the evil genius uh, uh, label to Donald Trump, probably more evil than genius, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's quite as Rasputin-esque as uh, one <laughs> might want to try to make him. So um, here, important issue. You may have heard or, or at least heard me mention that I, I got to talk to, Mary, to Maria Cuomo Cole earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, terrific person, terrific producer who, who, you know, made a movie Living for 32 about Virginia Tech. And now on Newtown, you ran uh, in, in what was, I think, part of like a, a, a new front, you know, in terms of having the courage, having elected officials have the courage to run on the issue of gun safety, gun control, call it what you will. You ran a great campaign on that. Do you see things changing on that front? Yeah, I, I, I really do. And, and again, let me just sort of, you know, commend and salute what a leading voice you've been on that issue for a very long time, um, you know, both in Ohio and, and nationally. You know, I, I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of from what obviously was a U.S. Senate campaign in which uh, gave it my all but did not prevail. But, you know, I think we advocated as strongly and as forcefully as any federal candidate uh, in the country on the issue of gun safety and, you know, saving lives of families and children uh, in communities right here, like in Cincinnati. And I think one of the things that I guess I kind of wanted to do was give other candidates a little bit of a permission structure and say, you know, uh -huh. if jaded political consultants have been telling people, telling Democrats for a long time, well, you know, you can't talk about the NRA because it's the third rail of politics. To let folks know that actually you can be brave on this issue, and not only can you be brave, morally it's the right thing to do, but, you know, politically you can build a coalition around that. So I do think the conversation has definitely changed around this issue. Um, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a little bit of a lag time between when hearts and minds of regular folks are changed. And I think largely, yeah. you know, as we, as we know from polling, so many uh, of those hearts and minds, whether it's around background checks or keeping terrorists, 
um, from buy, from legally buying guns and explosives. A lot of those hearts and minds already are changed. There's going to be a lag time between when Congress actually catches up with them, but there's no question the conversation is in such a different place than it was, you know, even even you know three years ago, five years ago. It's 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 sad. It's taken tragedies like Virginia Tech, like Newtown, but um, yep. I I I guess I'm because it's, it's easy. As you know, it's easy to also feel really depressed about this topic, that a tragedy happens and nothing changes. But I think we're getting closer to, you know, enough of a coalition and enough folks in an elected office that they we're not just going to do nothing in the face of some of these tragedies. Yeah, I mean, in addition to some of the great grassroots uh, activism, that's just a whole new world from where we were in the past. I know Senator Chris Murphy was in town here. Then you sat down at a roundtable with him. He's been a phenomenal leader on this. We've got, as I talked with Maria, about state ballot measures in four different states, all look poised to win. Um, and, and, you know, we'll have to see. We'll do some talking here because I think a few of us are talking about maybe perhaps something in 2018 on the ballot in Ohio, which would be, which would be pretty awesome. But um, well, I, think it'd be, look, I think it'd be great. I think it's another one of those things where, you know, if we show that we can do it in Ohio, I think it shows you can do it just about anywhere. But, you know, the, the, the one – well, I mean, I, I've you know said this in a couple venues recently. I just I do think it's so important that we still don't somehow cede, even though Republicans have been blocking common sense gun safety legislation. Do we actually say this is not a partisan issue? I mean, you know, when when we mourn the lives lost to gun violence, we don't say you know this person was a Republican and that person was a Democrat. These were parents and children and brothers and sisters. So I think it's you know this is an issue which I think you know increasingly people will rally around and i hope that someday down the line we look back and just think that this was a time of 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 madness and chaos and can't believe there was a time when we live like this because obviously there are plenty of other countries around the world who can't believe that in the year 2016 the united states was like this right i think we'll look at in the way we look at something like mad men when they're smoking or that yeah, exactly. kind of thing <laughs> so why, you why were you folks letting yeah why, yeah exactly i i hope there's a time when the current situation and reality around gun violence seems very, very foreign to us. Just almost absurd. So you have to go, I think, right now at 5.55, but you know, I, this I, is your I, last I appreciate ch- you keeping a, a tight clock, but I'm going to... Well, it's your last chance for you to say what you're going to run for, PG, the, the big uh, announcement. Are you going to announce on this well, show? I don't think any, any earth-shattering announcement. I probably won't make a final decision until after uh, this November's elections. But, you know, one of the things I did talk a lot about at the campaign trail was that people who have been practitioners um, and, and leaders at the local level in cities and sort of the ecosystem of cities where so much is happening, especially around job creation and education and criminal justice reform, taking that perspective to Washington. Um, you know, I did not make it to Washington, but I am as committed to cities, and particularly my hometown of Cincinnati. So I think the most likely thing is to stay, stay at least for the time being perched there at City Hall and try and get some good stuff done. But I promise I will keep the, the Cliff Schechter filling in for <laughs> Leslie Marshall show. They'll be the first to know in the future. I have no doubt you'll make your way to Washington eventually. We can use you here for now, certainly. Hey, man, thank you for being on. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Cliff. Talk, talk to you soon. Take care. All right, folks. Well, we've got about two minutes left, so uh, why don't we sum up all the great stuff that uh, we chat about here. I had a good conversation with Jordan Karp about uh, how things are looking good, uh, a similar conversation with PG, but know that you need to get out there and vote. You need to talk to your best friends, your sisters, your brothers, your dad, your mom, your cousins, your grandparents. Make sure people know about Donald Trump, what he stands for, racism, misogyny, 
you know, the, the kinds of things he said on this tape, the kinds of things he's done, um, you know, kind of not paying taxes and the rest. We can win this thing. Early voting has already started in some places. It starts tomorrow in Ohio. Uh, I'll remind you all also uh, two things. One, see a great film that's come out produced by Maria Cuomo Cole, which is called Newtown. Uh, very simple. You know what it's about. Newtownfilm.com is the website. You can go there and check it out. And I would say also get The Embassy, A Story of War and Diplomacy by Dante Paradiso. You, you won't read a better book this year. Thank you so much. I think I'm out. It's been fun hosting, guest hosting the show again. And uh, see you here sometime again soon. Later. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.